This year there will be peace. This year there will be peace. This year there will be peace. There will be peace. There will be peace for my sister and my brother. Peace for my sister and my brother. Peace for my friends and for the others. There will be peace. All of your marriages are healthy. All of your children are strong. This is the year that you'll be wealthy. It won't be too long. Your cat is grateful for your friendship. He is effusive with his praise. He runs to you when you call him. These are the good days. Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Thank you again to the Steel Wheels for this season's theme song. The band is currently touring in anticipation of their new album, Sideways, releasing next month. They're likely coming somewhere near you, and so for links to their website and touring schedule, check out this episode's webpage at marktwainstudies.com backslash Apple TV. This episode, I think, builds upon discussions of streamer branding, corporate allegory, and televisual genre in the first two installments of this series. It is also something of a sequel to the conversation about corporate authorship in HBO in the first episode of our fifth season. It might seem more than even customarily audacious to claim that Apple TV Plus, the primary object of today's discussion, has some clear connection to Twain's studies. But I have argued exactly that in a presentation for last fall's Quarry Farm Symposium on invention, technology, and speculative fiction, primarily through Twain's posthumously published miscellany novel, The Secret History of Oedipus World Empire. If you'd like to watch that presentation, which was named a video of the week by the syllabus in October, you can find the link in our episode bibliography at marktwainstudies.com backslash Apple TV. To discuss Apple TV Plus and some of its offerings, particularly The Morning Show, Lessons in Chemistry, Severance, and Fingernails, I'm joined today by TV scholars Anna Schechtman and Michael Zillay. Zillay, professor of English at University of California, Irvine, has two essays about Apple TV Plus forthcoming, Overcoming Severance in the journal Polymath, and Apple's Gimmick in Los Angeles Review of Books. He is also the author of Second Lives, Black Market Melodramas, and the Reinvention of Television, published just last year by University of Chicago Press. Anna Schechtman is currently a Claremont Fellow at Cornell University and will join the Department of Literatures there later this year. She has written extensively about the concepts of media and data, as well as the form of crosswords, which she also creates. For both academic publications like Critical Inquiry and Representations, and literary periodicals like The New Yorker and The New York Review of Books. 
For more about these guests and this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash Apple TV plus or subscribe to my newsletter at theamericanvandal.substack.com. Michael, after reading your Overcoming Severance piece, I thought maybe we'd start by talking about a kind of suggestion of periodization that you offer in the early stages of that essay, that the Second Lives book that just came out, and which I know was organized at least to some extent around the the period of prestige television or quality TV and a, a kind of association with brand equity, particularly through HBO as the sort of characteristic brand, if not the defining one, and then a genre it seems that you're suggesting at the outset of Overcoming Severance that we're entering something new. And I think you're probably not alone in making that suggestion. And so I was wondering if you could start by talking about as you shift from your last project to this one and from HBO to Apple TV and from the kinds of generic and brand considerations that were part of Second Lives to the ones that you're exploring in Apple's gimmick and in Overcoming Severance, how are you understanding this kind of potentially new epoch of televisual entertainment? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah, as you say, the book Second Lives, it's really a book in a way about cable and about a genre of TV that's established in the kind of 10 years or so following The Sopranos on cable channels like HBO, like Showtime, even linear commercial cable networks like AMC. And the book, in a way, is a little bit blind to, or at least not centrally focused on, the streamers that emerged towards the end of the long period that I cover in the book. And so the pieces that we're talking about today, which are from a book I'm writing about Apple, I don't think it's less that it's Maybe it's not something entirely new, especially since I think the kinds of claims I'm making about Apple are applied to Amazon above all in very markedly different ways. But I don't think the claims I'm making about Apple are described streaming in some absolute sense. I'm really most interested in how programming on Apple and to a lesser extent on Amazon has fused with a commercial marketing form that is still largely not recognizable to audiences and critics because we have these kind of preset dispositions to just view all content as more or less the same, as more or less most interested in genre and what have you. So this book, th this project really is not even about streaming generally, but about this particular streaming service and how it works and why it's doing what it's doing. What most interests you about Apple TV Plus then, I think. For those of our listeners who have not uh, explored its archives, why turn to it as opposed to Amazon? Why does it stand out as, as opposed to a broader investigation of the streaming platforms or the streaming wars? The size and the focus at Apple is just unparalleled. I've been one of a handful of people who've been geeking out over the last 10 or so years discovering corporate allegories in a lot of the kind of larger tentpole fare offered by Hollywood studios. But Apple is taking this now to an entirely new level. And it's in part because their offerings are so limited now, even I guess we're going into the fifth year after the streamer was launched in 2019. They don't do nearly as much as 
Netflix does. And what they do is intensely consciously branded in ways that is sometimes the case at Amazon, but not typically the case. It's useful to think of the famous degrees of obsessive control that Apple has exerted on um, its device production and its operating systems. And we don't think twice about the meticulous branding and the assiduous integration that defines that system, the way in which every device, every new software has a carefully thought out place in this larger ecosystem. The kind of simple claim of the project that I'm working on is that the content at Apple TV Plus, which is by and large, otherwise mostly undistinguished, is absolutely as seamlessly integrated into this larger Apple ecosystem as these other devices and software systems have been. And normally a claim like that might be greeted with skepticism. If it's about a Hollywood studio, is Batman really about the Paramount merger with, with Time Warner? But I think we're at least accustomed to thinking of Apple as absolutely committed to the degree of intentionality and control. We're just not used to thinking that in terms of content, in terms of TV shows and films, but it's there and it's happening. And that's what interests me. I had a phone call with Michael before this recording, and he started listing off titles, some of which I knew pretty intimately, like Coda, for example, the Oscar-winning film, but then dozens of others that I'd truly never heard of, all of which were produced by Apple. And I had this very strange sense that I'd been living under a rock because it was pretty, I think it was pretty well publicized that Amazon Studios and that Netflix were really working to make Oscar bait or working to be producing sort of quality television alongside its, you know, the Drek. And that's where I live in the realm of the, in the realm of the garbage television, personally. But I had this sense that I'm living under a rock, that I, my finger's off the pulse. And I think, Michael, you said that maybe that's not the case, that the pulse is not at Apple Plus. <laughs> that's actually not what they're doing. They're doing something else, something perhaps more conspiratorial, as you're describing, some sort of brand management by way of prestige TV. But I also was wondering, on the one hand, it's easy to spot once you point out that there are however many Apple devices in The Morning Show and in Ted Lasso, that there is a kind of omnipresent Appleness to these shows. Although I'm sure you could probably pick an Amazon Studios film and also see just how many Apple devices there are in them. And I was actually wondering if there was a perverse quietness about this campaign of Apple's, maybe even because the sort of accusations of vertical integration could so much more easily be attached to them because they're actually making the devices on which this content is streamed. That's like next level conspiratorial, right? That they actually would not want to be promoting the fact that they made an Oscar Best Picture film two years into their run. But do you have an alternative theory as to why Apple Plus is not the Pulse, even though it's uh, produced by a mega behemoth corporation? Okay, so first of all, if Anna doesn't have her finger on the pulse, then I don't know who does, and then I don't know what the pulse is. And I'm so grateful for having a chance to talk with her even before this podcast and now. It's a great question. I think it is small, and it is right now in one of the highest stream rates among the major streamers. It has about as many subscribers, I think, when I last checked as Peacock and Paramount Plus toward the bottom of that list. 
but also but at the same giving time, away giving it away for free quite a bit right and that that seems relevant here right that it seems to be that integration you're talking about sometimes means that apple tv plus is not something somebody signs up for but rather something that they get for free with an apple device or another subscription and they may not even know they have yeah and frankly there's a lot of bafflement out there from industry pundits and critics as to why apple's doing what it's doing like why invest 200 plus million dollars in killers of the flower moon and in napoleon those lost a lot of money, each of those. And the general answer has been that they're committing to theatrical releases in part because it gets the brand out there and people understand that there is a streaming service if they haven't already. But I think there's a more fundamental way in which, at least for now, and this has been the case for a number of years, Apple is as much for the industry as it is for consumers. They are really oriented towards Hollywood talent and they pay top dollar for that talent. And they did theatrical releases because Martin Scorsese and DiCaprio and the rest wanted them. And so they make really expensive programs and they pay lavishly for them. And it's hard to measure this kind of thing, but if industry podcasts like The Town, for example, come back again and again to the notion that The Town really likes Apple because of how friendly they are toward talent in particular. They are going slowly, Anna. And I think not only are they figuring out as they're going along, but I think there are long range plans here that don't necessarily apply to any streamer except, again, possibly Amazon. For example, Apple Vision Pro. They're already releasing content on TV Plus that's designed specifically for the immersive experience of their VR headset. One of the last things Steve Jobs said before he died is that he thought he had cracked the TV problem. And he had been for years working on a device that would essentially give them something like iTunes and the iPod did, something where they could coordinate content offerings with one of their own platforms. And he died before that happened, but it's clear that the Vision Pro is going to be something like that, or at least that they think it's going to be something like that. I think they're growing slowly toward integrations that we can only really guess at based upon the content that we're seeing. This is a famously kind of like like Lumon, a famously buttoned up company where really the best clues we have to a larger strategic vision, I think, comes from these programs. So I don't think right away they're as preoccupied as we might expect with knocking it out of the park or having their finger on the pulse. Obviously, who wouldn't love that? But I think they're absolutely okay with plugging along, making expensive movies, ingratiating themselves to the industry, slowly growing their subscriber base and just figuring out as they go in part, how they're going to most effectively weaponize that with their device offerings and their other services. I think what's so strange to me about your comparison, something like Peacock or Paramount, is that to me, the appeal of those streamers that I do subscribe to is their back catalogs, right? Like where else are you going to get I guess this is Max, but like all of Warner Brothers, not exactly all, but that's the appeal to me. And of course, Apple can't offer that. So maybe slow and steady is the best bet. Yeah, it's funny, again, back to the obsessive allegoresis here, but like C, which is one of their earliest sci-fi epics with Jason Momoa and Foundation as well, their current big sci-fi offer, both turn crucially on 
the presence of a library and whether or not we should be searching for a library and whether a library is really going to get us to the next phase. And in different ways, each of those by the end refuses the library as if to suggest that's not really the solution. I think, yeah, there's been whispering since TV plus started that they were going to buy a studio. They were rumored to be in the hunt for MGM when Amazon purchased it. But in truth, if you read these accounts of Apple, one of the biggest mistakes they understand themselves as having made was the purchase of Beats for $3 billion way back when. And they were actually buying Beats, by and large, people now say, for the streaming service that Beats had been developing, not so much for the headphone technology. But the acquisition didn't go well in part because Apple has this obsessively cultivated corporate ethos and culture. And with Beats, they were integrating a kind of already up and running corporation into that, and it didn't go well. And one of the accounts you hear again and again for why they're not really going to buy a studio is they don't want to have to absorb the studio and its traditions and its practices and its management structure into their own. I think the bigger thing that's lurking here, and this is true of the streaming industry generally is live sports, which Amazon recently invested, I think, $100 million to buy a single game for Black Friday because they're experimenting with advertising and click-through options so that you can watch the game and you can buy stuff at the same time. And Yeah, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And the only thing really truly keeping the cable bundle alive anymore is ESPN. And so Apple's, they purchased MLS Soccer. They made the deal with Messi. The NBA is about to renegotiate a rights package with someone. I think they have, whether, MLB, they have an MLB package on Apple. They have an well. MLB package, yeah. yeah. And so I think the thing that's going to decisively kill the cable bundle if and when that happens and change the fortunes of Amazon and Netflix and Apple are going to be the acquisition of some large league. So then instead of doing a piece of it, one, one or two games a week, you really get most of it. I think that's what's coming somewhere. I just don't know how Apple's going to figure in that. Wait, I know Matt, is, is, I'm taking Matt's job for a second because I have Fine. a question. Uh, that, that, I like it when my job Sorry. gets easier, yeah. Okay, great. You mentioned the sort of incompatibility of the studio system with the extreme control that Apple wants to maintain over its content. But I guess that's why I was surprised to see that Scorsese was working with them. I was thinking about those sort of big breakthrough films for both Netflix and Amazon, whether it was like Coda with Alfonso Cuaron or it was the Kenneth Lonigan film, that there were prestige directors or directors attached to these projects. Whereas Coda, forgive me, I don't remember who directed Coda. And I thought maybe the fact that they were investing in stars or front of the camera talent and not behind the camera talent was consistent with the sort of corporate author, right? Or co corporate auteur that is actually making the kind of, that is looking at the dailies and making copious notes. And I wonder if at all, you're again, finger on the policy or to the streets, whether there was any issue working with Scorsese, whether he was willing to concede authorial oversight to Apple or whether Apple was willing to concede its standards of intervention. To <laughs> That's a great, like one wants to know how those apples get on that coffin. Like if it's some, 
you know, <laughs> some innocuous Apple exec who just like slinks up and innocuously places them on the coffin in between takes. Coda is like Fingernails is acquired on the festival service after the fact. So it's a distribution deal by and large. You can be as canny with your distribution deals as not, and you can see films that resonate with your brand and you buy them. Killers of the Flower Moon was a much bigger, messier affair because it was years in development and because I think it was Paramount, which ended up distributing it, was originally paying for a chunk of it, cost overruns, they want to let go, but Apple steps in. I think it's purely a prestige play with Apple. I suspect most any studio wants him to shave 30 minutes off of that movie, wants him to make it somehow amenable, and Scorsese says he just doesn't want to. And... I think with Apple, that's just fine. It's an interesting movie, and I think there's interesting things about its politics, the way in which the problem of management and the federal government kind of gets played into this anti-Trump, middle American allegory. But I think by and large, Apple doesn't need to obsessively control a production like Killers of the Flower Moon. They get Scorsese, they get the release, they lose money, that's fine. You see the most aggressive branding with some of these large tentpole TV shows like The Morning Show, like Foundation above probably all of them. And I think there from the get-go, these are conceived in conversation with Cupertino and they're worked out in a moment by moment basis that way. But I don't think something like Killers of the Flower Moon necessarily carries that weight or even needs to. And that's probably becomes counterproductive if you are too aggressively telling Martin Scorsese that he needs to you know, put an iPhone in his 1920s, <laughs> which doesn't happen. I really like this metaphor that we've been coming back to, the pulse which Apple is circling around and almost maybe overdeterminedly trying to avoid. And when I first started talking to you about this, I don't know, six months ago, Michael, one of the things that had stood out to me as I fell down the rabbit hole of Apple TV was a, a kind of forking in their offering, where on the one hand, they seem to be very interested in kind of 20th century period pieces and costume dramas, and definitely a nostalgia for Cold War era or end of history era, not just in the content, but also in the stars and the directors, the people that they wanted to have relationships with, the creators they wanted to have relationships seem to oftentimes be people who I associate with the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, people like Scorsese and Meryl Streep and Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. Spoon, right? That there was certainly a kind of nostalgia for neoliberalism on the one hand, and then there was all of this sci-fi and speculative fiction on the other, that there seemed to be a kind of forking that you identify in some of your pieces happening even sometimes within a single piece of content like Severance, right? That on the one hand, this is a techno-dystopian future. On the other hand, when we go underground it seems as though we are going back in time to the early days of Apple. And I was curious how both of you, how you interpreted this kind of split between nostalgia for the 20th century and a deep investment in very expensive sci-fi offerings like the foundation, as you pointed out, Silo, so on and so forth. Yeah, whether or not it's nostalgia is tricky. Matt has this great video you can get on YouTube where he talks about the TV show Silo, another Apple offering. And Matt, I just, I had never, 
your claim about the shape and the kind of cross section of the silo evoking a kind of memory storage device was amazing. And that had never occurred to me, but what you just said about severance and the rest applies equally well for silo because exactly, and silo really is just like severance rotated a few degrees and told over. It's another escape from the Apple silo when it turns out, I think if Underground. you read it yeah. in advance, you're going to end up returning to the silo because the world is just full of silos and maybe this one's better than the other. But whether it's nostalgia is a tricky thing. It's not nostalgia in severance when you're in the basement, right? It's pretty oppressive. I think in a way that 1984 advertising campaign, the Big Brother one, is really key because what they've done, and this is true of fingernails as well, they've Mm -hmm. perfected this razor's edge in which these media can seem at once anti-device, anti the role that machinery has in our lives, and yet in a weird way end up suggesting just the opposite. And silo, severance, fingernails, or all these kind of gently dystopic, temporally ambiguous versions of that 1984 ad. There's a different question in terms of their nostalgia for the Hollywood star and Reese Witherspoon and, and whatnot. And that's, that's interesting, but I'm going to shut up. I want to hear what Anna has to say about this. I think a nostalgia for neoliberalism is an interesting way to, well, I should actually just step back and say, I haven't seen any of the sci-fi side of that catalog in part because Michael very kindly told me I didn't have to. (laughs) 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 Thank you. But the nostalgia for neoliberalism is interesting when you just think about the computing devices that are featured, the sort of fantasy computing devices that are featured in these programs and just thinking about fingernails now and severance, which I think, Michael, in your piece, you talk about how their device in fingernails is this like mainframe, right? And then there are these strange boxy personal computers in severance that bear no semblance to the current Apple devices. And so there does seem to be a kind of like, if, if they're temporarily ambiguous, they also maybe exist between the ENIAC and the Apple II. That's where these uh, fantasy spaces reside. But I think Michael's right to say that whether they are nostalgic for or are back projecting a kind of dystopian fantasy onto the recent past is an interesting question. On the other side, I do think there is just a kind of liberal wish, wish fulfillment in a bunch of these, in a, in a bunch of what I've seen, especially lessons in chemistry, which I found in general just hard to watch. It's so, but, so, <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> I had a really hard time with it. And but also maybe in the morning show in a, in a slightly different way, certainly in terms of its valorization of TV news as the beacon of light and fact checking in this country. I was very confused by that, right? This is not a celebration of the newsroom in the spotlight sense, right? But back briefly to lessons in chemistry, the extent to which that show represented a kind of liberal wet dream of integration and feminism that was completely inconceivable, you know, the sort of suburban terms that, that it presents and seemingly no, I don't know, how did Apple get away with this? It's, it's amazing. <laughs> or, yeah. I mean, it's it, like, maybe it's like a kind of Obama era. Oh, it absolutely. TV show. It absolutely In is. a post-Trump world, it's very strange. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And so there's this documentary that Hillary Clinton did for Apple called, I think, what is it, Matt? Plucky? 
or is something <laughs> oh, like oh no i know i know what it is it's, she did it with her daughter she did it with chelsea what was it it's spunky or plucky uh, or something like that the white liberal feminist euphemism professor zale is searching for here is gutsy but it, it's absolutely what you're saying anna in all of these shows and this is tim cook to a t there is this kind of very banal, broad, pro-business, kind of Clinton-Obama-era vision of liberalism. Um, I like calling it I-liberalism with a small I in front of it. And it's really, that's as deep as the politics go. I think even Killers of a Flower Moon is in some sense about that, because that movie is about stewardship and the federal government that kind of comes in and models an appropriate relationship to this native tribe as a kind of benign steward of resources. It's against the kind of overly extractive, exploitive practices that are happening on the ground. And in almost all Apple shows, you get this very benign, broadly liberal, but really lamely into Anna is so right to point out lessons in chemistry where they just super add this story about racial integration and the building of a freeway through an all black neighborhood in Pasadena, as if to suggest that, you know, that this woman's fight for equal representation in a chemistry research facility is the same as the effort of her neighbors to prevent a freeway going through this beautiful neighborhood. And it's just torturous. It's absolutely torturous. And it's worth thinking about this in relation to, for example, Bob Iger's pivot with Disney, right? Where he just decided recently, maybe going to war with DeSantis and the Republican right isn't such a great idea. And so he's recently announced that Disney's offerings need to become a little less woke and progressive, as he puts it. Apple will be an interesting one to watch over the course of 2024 because yeah it's committed to this nominally democratic view of the world but in a very bland and weak sauce way that one can imagine could easily pivot to something else yeah i think the inevitable comparison for the morning show is the sorkin newsroom show comparing the sorkinite which is possible to and that adjective without Sorkinite Obama politics of XYZ, right? Comparing the kind of revisionist history that Sorkin produces with that of the revisions that happen in the morning show are interesting, right? I don't think it's necessarily, it was so transparent and heavy footed in the newsroom where like we can rehearse this neither as tragedy nor farce, but as like redemption. <laughs> we can rehearse recent current events in, in a redemptive way, get it right this time around. And the temporality is maybe even slightly more accelerated in the morning show where we're just seeing the really recent past rehearsed and restaged and remediated as, I don't know what, is it tragedy? Is it farce? Is it redemptive? I mean, it, I can't get my fingers around how we're supposed to be reading even the January 6th insurrection, except as deeply condescending to the people who are to, to, to the rioters, right? I, I don't know if you have a sense of how we're supposed to be reimagining these events as they happen. So the interesting thing for me is that this is all filtered through a kind of Apple business plan in which Elon Musk, it's a, essentially a cautionary tale for the wrong kind of evil big tech buying what remains of linear commercial broadcast. And 
will Apple ever buy an asset like NBC Universal or ABC or who knows? But what's clear enough is that a show like The Morning Show is working on a lot of different levels to show, for example, okay, so we have the Sony hack. What company do we think of as more than any other associated with data privacy? It's Apple. And at every point in that show, there's this demonstration of like how Apple might have done better. Now, the people running Apple TV Plus came from Sony. They had a kind of personal experience of the data hack. Sony's an interesting company because it's really the closest you get to Apple besides Amazon because they make hardware devices as well as media content, but they are what the industry calls an arms dealer. Like they don't have their own distribution wing and Apple does. And so the morning show, yeah, as Anna says, it's on the one hand, there's this kind of like shocked, stupefied liberalism where characters look up every now and again and say, is this really happening? Is the world really going this way? If we just shake you enough, we can wake people from their kind of complacent sleep and we can alert them. Just get mad as hell enough and can't take it anymore enough. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But there's also another way in which Apple's really invested in this kind of fantasy about broadcast generally, because even as they've modeled themselves on HBO in terms of quality and money and stars, from the very beginning, they made clear that they're not going to be racy and quasi-pornographic, for example, the way HBO does. So they have always aimed for a kind of big tent audience. And so they're making not exactly broadcast, but I think they're kind of... Definitely not narrowcast. Not narrowcast, absolutely. Yeah. And I, so I think... That's interesting. They have one eye on, if not acquiring an asset like The Morning Show, they're invested in this greater vision this kind of public service vision of their own intervention in the media industry that is getting played out in the morning show, possibly as basis for a future acquisition, but even if not as a kind of way of thinking through how they conceive of their public mission in terms of their own productions. I, I agree that the morning show is a like fascinating train wreck of a series where I can't really take my eyes off it. Obviously, the production values are incredibly high. The kind of narrative leaps they take are insane at times and definitely have that kind of soap opera level of hyperbole. But I was wondering if we could try to think through the morning show from the perspective of Michael's interpretations of severance and fingernails, and particularly the way in which you argue about Apple's position on work. And this idea that perhaps one of the threads that unites all of Apple's content, film and television, speculative fiction, and sort of nostalgia is that it offers us a vision of work that is synonymous with love, with family, where the idea of work-life balance and work-life separation or severance, right, is the problem. And instead, we need to embrace a more intimate, loving relationship to work. And I think that argument, which you may want to clarify a little bit, I think it's fascinating to apply it to the morning show, which on the one hand is premised from the beginning on the idea of the abuse of power and the Me Too movement and the fallout. And yet throughout, we have over and over again, 
relationships that happen within the company. And even the most recent season, the kind of suggestion that those relationships are necessary and possibly even healthy for the functioning of the television program. I wondered how you took that argument about labor and applied it to this really oddball amongst all of Apple's offerings. Yeah, that's great. Look, on the face of it, they used to call them workplace dramas, ER, LA Law, whatever. It's not novel to have a workplace that is so consuming that it's all we see and people live their private lives there. And that is the kind of totality of their home in a way. What was striking to me in this Apple project is that by and large, that was the vision that almost entirely prestige TV had rejected with what I call the black market melodrama. So black market melodramas aren't ER. They aren't the West Wing. They are one after another involve characters trying to escape from this kind of endlessness of work that's collapsed into family life for which there's no outside. And what struck me is that Apple was, in a sense, reverting to this earlier model of the all-consuming workplace. But these are not exactly the way the 90s shows were, as you say, Matt. Yeah, the morning show nominally begins as this think piece on workplace sexual abuses, and it has this kind of cloying, parasitic relationship to the Me Too movement. But then also, as you say, if you watch that show long enough, is it wrong to say that Alex Levy saves broadcast news as we know it precisely because she's sleeping with Don Draper slash Elon Musk in the third season? Like it wags its finger on the surface at a certain kind of abusive workplace romantic relationship, but it almost feels as if it's doing that out of recognition of the fact that they are when done appropriately like the stuff of work itself, the stuff of the calling rather than the job. This has always been crucial to the iPhone's sales pitch, that it's not really the BlackBerry. It's not just for your work. It's for your life. And when you have an object that beautiful that enables as much as it does, you can rethink your life and you can commit to a calling rather than just a job. The last quick thing I'll say is just the show we haven't mentioned yet is the Big Door Prize, which is another compliment to fingernails. And again, there's this glistening machine that shows up out of nowhere in a small town. It tells everyone what their real true calling should be. They fight the machine. There's even long extended speeches in which characters like, how can we let a machine live our lives for us? Tell us what to do. Tell us what to think. All of which, like that 1984 ad, seems nominally like possibly an argument against being dominated by your iPhone. But by the end of the first season, they're all listening to the machine and they're learning to reinvent themselves in light of the machine's prodding. And it ends with each of them kind of embarking on these strange voyages of personal discovery in large part because of this machine. And so that's a long way of saying that I think while the actual generic kind of substrate of the morning show is not new. The prevalence of devices, the fascination with how and in what way big tech will and won't acquire what remains of the kind of civic mission of broadcast. All of these are worked through in that story in ways that I think are very much in line with Apple's medium and long range goals. Okay, so I wonder about the sort of assessment of the, the work family 
in these Apple shows, because I totally buy your argument that it is a kind of integration of labor and leisure selves that is the kind of model of, I don't know what to call it, self-actualization in these shows. And I definitely buy the extension of that as a kind of uh, allegory, or if you will, for what the iPhone has done to the line between labor and leisure, as it allows us to bring in fact, mandates that we bring work home with us in our pockets. But both The Morning Show and Severance poke fun at this idea of the work family. Alex Levy, in the beginning, jokes, or maybe it isn't isn't even a joke, she hysterically says, this is my work husband, right? Who's been, who's betrayed her, who's disgraced her. And in Severance, there are those corny, conspicuous family photos that, that the team members, although it's not a team, this isn't Netflix, this is a family, <laughs> that they put on their desks in the office. And so there seemed to be some acknowledgement or wink that this is a kind of misguided way to think about your coworkers, just as it's misguided to think that, misguided I think is probably as far as they'll actually go with regards to Me Too, it's misguided to sleep with your, your coworkers, right? Um, so that's that's the lesson, right? Misguided, not a good look. Um, and, you know, and, and yet, how do you then explain the finger wagging at the image of the work family and yet the understanding that one needs to be fully integrated as a self in and out of the office. That's one question I have. I also do genuinely want to talk about the feminist politics of the morning show. We can put that over here for now. Until you just said this, it hadn't occurred to me that Severance leaves us exactly where the morning show just did and that we discover that the main character, Mark, I guess his name is, has a work wife and a home wife. He thought his home wife died But in fact, she's been at work all along. And so meanwhile, he's fallen in love with Heliar. But I think at the end of the first episode, he finds out that his real wife, who he thought had died, is there. You have a version of that in the morning show with Alex's relationship to Charlie Black, right? Where he's in love with her. He seems to be half-heartedly committing to some other romance. We'll see what they do with that. There's a parallel to that then with not Alex, but the Reese Witherspoon character. Bradley. Bradley, yeah. Bradley, there's that same. Yeah. So Corey's in love with Bradley and Bradley is given a temporary romance that's not with Corey and that falls apart. And so call me crazy, but I'm curious to see whether... Alex and Charlie and Corey and Bradley don't in the end end up discovering their love for each other. Maybe not, but it's at least in play, right? Because insofar as that show has a pulse, it seems to be in Corey's unrequited love affair with Bradley, which from the beginning is creepy. Like even in the first season, (laughs) even in the first season, he's stalking her. They live in a hotel together and everyone's admonishing the recently departed Matt Lauer, but In the meantime, there's this kind of classy or ostensibly classy stylized version of it with Corey and Bradley that you can be forgiven after watching that show for seeing how that is different in some basic ways, but it's still disturbing. And one wonders if the show thinks it is or not, because it's not clear that it does. Yeah, nothing about the Corey character is clear to me. I have a friend who said he only makes sense if you imagine Nicolas Cage playing him instead of Billy Crudup, and I think that's actually really right. (laughs) Um, There's no way to really read what he's doing otherwise. But there's a, I don't know if you saw May, December. I know that we're switching to Netflix, but we're not actually. I just, there's one scene in that movie that I I can't stop thinking about, which is when the Natalie Portman character has a sort of casual and 
bad sex with Joe on, on behalf of her, her method acting in order to get close to him to understand the character she's going to play. And she says something to him. The line she says is, this is what grown-ups do. And there's one way to read that, right? Which is grown-ups have casual sex, grown-ups have bad sex. But I like thinking about it as, yeah, grown-ups have sex for work, which is also maybe the, the message of the morning show in some way. It's a, a cynical take on the work family that your personal life necessarily becomes enmeshed in your work life. This is what grown-ups do, right? Not because this is where the heart is. The same thing happens in Lessons in Chemistry, too, right? That the breakthrough that they have in terms of their research follows directly on the recognition of their attraction and the kind of evacuation of the power relationship for that purpose. That she is beholden to him until they they actually have sex until they actually recognize the depth of their attraction. And then not only do they become lovers, but their research takes on this whole new life and potential and possibility and the grants start flowing in, right? Yeah. In both lessons in, in chemistry and in the morning show, there's the sense that these very beautiful, very high achieving, very accomplished women, that if they didn't sleep with their workmates like that there's something about their value that would be unrecognized but i think it's also there's a strangeness michael you and i talked about this especially in lessons in chemistry but i see it in the morning show too where like in order for these women to be as ambitious and sexually viable as they are they also have to be socially inept it's not really the case with alex levy but is the case i think with bradley Jackson, the Reese Witherspoon character, also the case maybe with the Greta Lee character, definitely the case with the Brie Larson character in Lessons in Chemistry, right? It's not that they're like willingness to say the obviously feminist thing is a function of their bravery and conviction. It's a function of their like ignorance of social norms or something. (laughs) Their like tactlessness. Yeah. It's a really strange phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. And especially in Lessons in Chemistry, like Brie Larson's autism it's as if it's there to suggest that like almost in this ersatz principled way that there is no personal versus workplace demeanor for this person because this person's almost missing a dimension of their personality and so they're absolutely ruthlessly scientific whether in their kitchen i mean the, the way she interacts with her daughter is an interesting exception to this but by and large she has the same demeanor with her neighbor across the street as she would in the lab Look, the thing that interests me in all of this, it's not ultimately that Apple is particularly committed to policing workplace relationships. And I think we probably even give Tim Cook and crew too much credit if we think that they have some sort of principle stand on any of this that they've thought through. What strikes me rather is that in every one of these shows, Lessons in Chemistry, Severance, and The Morning Show, there's this twinning in which in Lessons in Chemistry, for example, there is an abusive workplace relationship that is essentially a rape, right? And then there is a productive workplace relationship where just as Matt said, there's this kind of alchemical relationship between them in the lab and science progresses because of it. And in Severance and in The Morning Show also, there is this kind of demonized, egregious version of the abuse of workplace relationships, almost as if to throw into relief those more properly productive relationships where individuals can synthesize their passions that drive them at work. And 
again, I think the point is not that Apple cares a whit about how workplaces are run, but that insofar as it is first and foremost, the purveyor of this device that allows you to confuse your personal life and your work everywhere you go, it has sold that technological affordance as this kind of gateway to an impassioned and personalized and implicitly entrepreneurial often relationship to work that is transformative, metamorphosizing. And so it's in some kind of fundamental way committed to this confusion of the personal and the professional. And I think what we're talking through is just that it's so then it has to navigate these narratively. Like it has to make a version of it okay and a version of it not okay. But at bottom, I think it's the functional imperative that derives from the iPhone and its larger device universe that makes these problems that have to be negotiated in the first place. That's so that's so interesting because I assume, at least in the morning show, that there's some writer somewhere who convinced themselves that by recognizing the sort of good and bad versions of, say, workplace romance, that what they're doing is trafficking shades of gray and nuance, right? And instead, what you're suggesting is that they are actually disavowing the ethical question in order to commit to the larger vision of integration of laboring and leisuring selves. For example, in the first season of The Morning Show, the weatherman's relationship, that that isn't actually demonstrating that there is nuance in these relationships, that there might be actually different kinds of power that are being exchanged in these relationships that are not just exploitative for the women, but actually we see their relationship like outside of the office. That's the scene in which they're like redeemed. But of course, they're still processing the workplace in their bedrooms. I think that the problem is worried at all is something to which Apple's kind of necessarily committed, that there be shades of gray. I think it's less interested in drawing the distinction here or there than in adjudicating the larger problem and allowing for the possibility that our animating passions are not simply leisure or home or the things we do away from work, but that they are the work that's with us all the time. And I think how a particular show does it, like Ted Lasso, there's this kind of affair that the club owner has with one of her soccer players on the second season. And there was a small debate online as to whether or not this was hypocritical in light of the the morning show. And again, it's hard to imagine Apple worrying or caring over much about like the final claim in the show or where exactly the line is drawn. I think it's invested more in simply acknowledging that insofar as we are passionate about our work and committed to it, that there's no way finally to hygienically cordon that, that off from the other forms of like eros and sexuality that drive us. Which means we will be more likely to pick up our phones in the middle of the night and check our email or whatever. <laughs> like, I guess- yeah. And I have to go back and watch that Hillary Clinton doc because like Hillary Clinton, the ghost, speaking of Clinton era liberalism, like the the ghost of Hillary Clinton lingers over a lot of this in ways that it might be interesting to check out. For sure. So I I wanted to, you know, maybe tease out and I know you're reluctant to make any claim that exceeds the specific situation of Apple, but it does seem like there's some sort of 
change that is happening here from the era of prestige TV that is built on the back of the kind of financialization of brands, HBO, but also AMC, FX. The identities of these brands take on a measure of wealth creation, and then every show is in service to that brand. And it seems like what you're suggesting certainly is happening with Apple and potentially with Amazon and possibly with HBO Max or Warner Brothers Discovery is a shift from the brand equity to the actual sales that the streaming content becomes something like advertising that is in service of a vision of the world that will acclimate us to the technology that is what is really valuable. And I was wondering if that somewhat reductive way (laughs) of describing your argument, what holes you might poke in it, but also, is this something that we can see extending away from Apple and actually becoming part of the broader televisual and cinematic landscape? Yes and no. I think it's interesting, especially as some streamers, Amazon, Netflix, and limited ways are beginning to reintroduce commercial tiers. There's going to be a version of what TV scholars call, I think it's, there are two different kinds of commodity relations we see in broadcast versus cable TV. And insofar as commercial networks like AMC and even now streaming commercial options, Amazon and Netflix are going to be selling commodities, then it's in a sense that we know we've been there before, and that's a familiar thing to us. It was least implicit, at least since the rise of HBO, that these direct services that you would pay to would reformulate that so that they were always, in a sense, commercials for themselves. It made sense that they were branding themselves because they weren't selling you products while you were watching. They were selling you a particularly HBO inflected view of the world. And so there's a lot of, for example, HBO behind the scenes dramas from the Larry Sanders show to Curb Your Enthusiasm, where part of the HBO gestalt became that kind of very clever, late postmodern referencing the production of the show itself, et cetera, et cetera. All of that, again, is very familiar. I don't think it's until Apple that we have a slightly new version of this that's made possible in part by the depth of the pockets and the control that the company has typically exerted on its larger system. And also, frankly, by the fact that Apple makes relatively few things. They have this famously small set of offerings that they think about coherently in relationship to each other. In that respect, they're the exact opposite of Amazon. Amazon's going to be pioneering its own horizons in which I heard in a podcast the other day speculation whether or not the kind of down market brand of Reacher in Amazon series wasn't, in a sense, an implicit advertisement for Amazon Essentials. And, <laughs> and what they can do with Super Bowl and marketing during Black Fridays and whatnot, Amazon has an entirely different terrain to explore. And they are going to be, no doubt, at the forefront of pushing that in ways that, frankly, I can't even entirely anticipate. Apple's interesting to me above all, because while it's always been the case that studios have weakly branded their offerings to make them identifiable, to make them associatable with a particular studio or a particular network, 
it's never been the case that there was a finite staple of commodities that were also being sold at one of the same time where the studio's brand could be the device brand, could be the company's brand. And again, we have to think about Sony a little bit, but Sony isn't a streamer, it's an arms dealer. And so they make stuff for other people. There's this interesting moment in the 90s when if you go back and look at The Last Action Hero, it very much is a kind of advertisement for Sony Walkman. And Sony was playing around in the 90s and the 80s with what it meant to be making hardware and software at the same time. But, but by and large, they're not in the position that Apple is in. So Matt, this is a really long-winded way of saying, I think Apple is a unique petri dish because it allows us to think through this fantasy that has always driven marketing and branding in which your branding can be so narratively elaborated and refined that you're not so much placing a product but you're selling the brand attributes and the affordances and the class and the status and everything in a kind of narrative form around an object branding's always been about that it's just that apple gets to do this now with these ubiquitous devices in ways that I, I just can't think of a parallel with. So I guess I'm still resisting your extension of this to a kind of grand model beyond Apple, because I think Apple represents a kind of particular setup that other places can't yet reproduce. Although it is interesting to, in Second Lives, and I think in your severance essay, you put this really fine point, very elegant fine point on your argument in Second Lives, which is that if Raymond Williams was in his book on television was describing the intention and effects of industrialization, television as, as expressing the intention and effects of industrialization, that the particular meta genre that you're identifying is articulating the intentions and, and effects of deindustrialization. But I was thinking about that category that Williams also identifies in that book of mobile privatization as the kind of new, or as one of the sort of primary principal affordances of, of television as a way to basically allow for, produce a kind of home feeling or homelikeness in, a, in an otherwise very mobile and sprawling urban landscape. I can't think of any other two words put together that more encapsulate Apple than mobile privatization. So I wonder how you might see Apple, and I guess I'm just asking you to trace continuities from Williams through all of these otherwise, I think, really clear and cogent inflection points that you're pointing out, which is like the black market melodrama and also Apple's work. That's so amazing. I need to go back and look at that phrase because you're right. It, that phrase is too good not to use again. It, man, it's so tricky. Like deindustrialization, which is a phrase that's used by economists typically to describe macroeconomic phenomena, can also in its way be used to describe the rise of Apple TV Plus insofar as, I don't know which iteration of the Apple, maybe it's about 10 or so years ago, they start sitting around an Apple and going, look, our profit margins in the kind of manufacture the industrial manufacturer of iPhones are slowly decreasing. We're still incredibly profitable. But if we follow out this graph, like we, eventually everyone's going to have a phone and eventually the, the party is over. And so they turn to services, right? Is what they name their division for all of the things that they can get monthly rents from rather than sales from. 
And so to some extent, absolutely, Apple is a piece of this larger phenomenon of deindustrialization, one that's inflected toward the particular dynamics of this company, but it absolutely extends the kinds of things you're talking about. And yes, especially I think what's so useful and wonderful about what you just said is that the point of the Second Lies book was to show how the family and the family drama extend and become a capstone for this account of in Williams, because in Williams, it's the family's mobile privatization right. um, that it can move to the suburbs, that television allows for this kind of migration of skilled labor out of cities and allows for a kind of new social arrangements that facilitate industrial expansion in the mid-century. And absolutely, exactly as you say, Apple is a useful way into thinking about how the smartphone is setting us up with a kind of new inflection of or new version of mobile privatization. The one in which work has to be redefined, family has to be re redefined, love has to be redefined. And I think that's the project of TV+. Plus. Yeah. I think that's what it's doing, exactly as you say. The unit is no longer the family, but the entrepreneur, right? Or the laborer, depending on how you want to conceive of that unbalanced, uh, obsessive, compulsive relationship to everything that's on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it really matters. And I, I haven't really checked this out against all of their offerings, but I think it really matters that for all of their orientation towards a kind of banal big tent, almost broadcast sensibility. The family does not emerge in Apple TV plus as like the primary object of address or even the primary subject. And that's interesting because if on the one hand, the offerings are more conceivably family friendly in tone, it's not really romancing the family as in the way that this okay. earlier generation of TV did. It's not family friendly, it's user friendly. Yes. <laughs> That's what Apple is. Yeah. The, the, it's the person who has the password and can unlike this device friendly. And so privacy yeah. now must exist in the family as well as for the family. There's got to be some Apple show coming in which like privacy is a question of one family member's rel relation to another and their phones. There, there is one already and I can't, it was so bad I can't even <laughs> remember what it was called. But there's a kind of thriller miniseries. Is it Vigo Mortensen who disappears? And I think it's Jennifer Conley is left behind with his daughter from a previous relationship. And he's disappeared, but he's taken everything with him. They can't figure out who he is, how to get to any of his information, where he's gone. Yeah, yeah it's, that's fantastic, Matt. It's called The Last Thing He Told Me. <laughs> Yeah. And again, it's about the tech industry. It's about a guy who's wrongly accused of um, some sort of transgression, insider trading or something. And it's about trying to reconstitute the family by learning passwords and putting it back together somehow. I could forget if whether in the end the family does get put back together or not. Yeah, I don't remember either. Yeah. <laughs> Why these shows are so bad. They make you wonder. There's so many nerds is the word I'm trying to land on who are doing their own version of quality control for Apple since Jobs' death, right? That, that they've fallen off or they're not doing the same kind of work that they're doing. And it makes you wonder if maybe Steve Jobs would have just made better better television than Tim Cook is capable of. I, I guess <laughs> Why it, are these shows so bad? <laughs> I guess if it was anything like Pixar, it would have been a lot better. Um, exactly. And Apple TV d did cut a deal with John Lasseter, right? He made 
an early animated feature for them about a cat. But Anna, one of the things that you just said that I'm still wrestling with is, okay, let's say, let's just call it the badness of Apple TV+. Plus. I think my book is tentatively titled Bad Apples. And I think... <laughs> might have some difficulty securing permissions for that one. There is a kind of dazzling sophistication at the level of the streamer and the service and at the level of the kind of synthesis that's going on between their offerings. But the problem is that's an executive coherence and an executive level coherence that sometimes makes the shows themselves a little bit lifeless. I think Severance is a kind of dazzling exception. I think Ted Lasso, for all of its silliness is a really good show and there are other good shows but almost as a function of the coherence with which they're being slotted into this larger system these shows are oftentimes like you can feel that they exist in the service of something else and that means that there's oftentimes like they're missing some just irreducible tension or problem or even messiness that will often make TV interesting. You you uh, use the word sheen several times in your essays. You both use it to reference how the iPhone itself looks and the, the way that it was designed. But that also, I think, captures something about how that sort of similarity, that homogeneity that exists across all the Apple offerings, regardless of the, the quality of their narratives or their performances, they look expensive and they look of a piece. They have that kind of sheen in the production values. It both can be off-putting, but it also is something that draws you back, right? You can count on the expensive sheen that whatever program you happen upon in this archive is going to have. Yeah. And I think Netflix is a little interesting there too, because they've perfected that with action and certain kinds of thrillers. And they have whether in their tracking shots or their use of outdoor photography, like they produce a really compelling and identifiable Netflix production value that I think if you're in a certain mood, you go for it. A Apple, as you've said, Matt, does a version of that with the drawing room drama. They're star focused and they're conversational and they tend not to be thrillers that are dynamic in the way the Netflix best stuff often is. And as you say, there's this polish to all of it. it. It's a nice hang with the stars and with the money and with the feeling that everything's just really nicely well done. And if we're being honest, there are moments where that appeals and you don't want to be particularly challenged in any other way. But I do think that limits to loop this all the way back to the conversation of buzz and pulse with which we began. I think that makes the streamer really interesting, but I think exceptions like Severance aside, it robs individual shows of that fraught tension of uh, some contradictory set of impulses or something critical or even ugly that's almost always missing from Apple shows. And they're bland, they're good, and they're bland. I think that's why their comedies have done pretty well and, and better often than their dramas, because these qualities lend themselves to comedies, which are just pleasant, they're fun. And Apple has a lot of kind of good, but not great comedies, but very few great dramas, very few. Following directly from that, is is this the nostalgia that I identified as a nostalgia for the 90s, for the end of history, for neoliberalism, is it actually for NBC? 
As you were describing the way Apple's offerings feel, I couldn't help but think of the kind of must-see TV era of NBC when Friends and Seinfeld and ER, there was a kind of reliability that was also very vacuous right? and, you know, in that era of Clintonian politics. And is that kind of what Apple is reaching for, looking back towards trying to reproduce in, in a, a much more politically charged and different media environment? 100%. 100%. That's dead on. And it, that's in part because most of the must-see TV stuff from the 90s is actually made by Warner Brothers Television. Warner Brothers Television. So NBC and HBO have this kind of weird complementary relationship mm-hmm. all through the 90s and the early, even the early 2000s. And I think in styling itself on the one hand as the kind of industry-friendly, star-friendly, talent-friendly HBO, but on the other, as a kind of potentially bigger tent, more incipiently broadcast, stylized streamer, it makes a lot of sense to end up somewhere in the 90s with NBC. And even the morning show, that's NBC, right? Yeah. I really, I think that's absolutely right. Ironically, NBC Universal is actually, I think, among Paramount, Warner's, and Peacock doing better right now than the other two. And I think they're not really likely coming up for sale anytime soon, or at least Peacock, I doubt is, because they have a whole cable component to their business. But yeah, Matt, that's absolutely right. It's the overwhelming success of the Housewife franchise is what's keeping that. Bravo's keeping them in the game. Yeah, that seems right. Absolutely. That was Anna Schechtman and Michael Zalay. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash Apple TV. Next episode, we'll be celebrating the long-anticipated publication of Anna Kornblue's Immediacy, which will be coming out from Verso this week, as well as the end of one of Anna's all-time favorite television shows, Showtime's Billions. Until then, I leave you with the steel wheels. I'm Matt Siebold. Thank you for listening. This year there will be peace. This year there will be peace. This year there will be peace. There will be peace. There will be peace for my sister and my brother. Peace for my sister and my brother. Peace for my friends and for the others. There will be peace. All of your marriages are healthy. All of your children are strong. This is the year that you'll be wealthy. It won't be too long. Your cat is grateful for your friendship. He is effusive with his praise. He runs to you when you call him. These are the good days. My mom will know how much I love her. My mom will know how much I care. I always do forget to write her. 
but she is always there. When my father's day is over, when my father's work is done, tell him I am proud to know him and to be called his son. This year you won't get any older This year you won't turn gray All of the songs we sing are bolder All these words will pass away There is no need to worry There is no worry here 